Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com and get 33% off of any purchase when you enter the promo code other people o t h e r p p l tweakedaudio.com enter the promo code other people get 33% off of whatever you buy these are earbuds these are headphones you can listen to things with them go and get some oh my god you are not alone you have found other people you and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person, just one person. Here we go again, this is it, this is other people, this is better than working, this is part of the overall process. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, it's nice to be with you, I appreciate you tuning in. My guest today, uh, Jim Crusoe. He's a longtime fixture uh, here in Los Angeles in our literary community. He's the author of several critically acclaimed books, the most recent of which, a novel, is called The Sleep Garden. It's available now from Tin House. It is uh, Mr. Crusoe's sixth novel. Had a good time talking with Jim and uh, excited to share that one with you coming up momentarily. Before I get going with that, though, I do have some mail. Uh, A listener named Luke wrote to me. In regard to uh, episode 407, last week's episode, my conversation with Lee Stein and Lux Alptrom, uh, the co-directors of Out of the Binders and BinderCon. Luke writes, Hi Brad, I think you let Lee and Lux off the hook on a few of their accusations slash claims. And you slipped into apologist mode too often when you were worried about offending someone. It would have been interesting to see where they stood on language policing and over-the-top sensitivity to what is deemed, quote, exclusionary. Personally, I think every time the word microaggression is uttered on a college campus, a Trump voter is born. Regards, Luke. So, thank you, Luke. I don't entirely disagree. I think that I can sometimes uh, get too wobbly when I start talking about things like race and class and gender difficult subjects, things that we often see uh, in our social media feeds, you know, topics of controversy, topics of uh, heated exchange. 
and uh, you know to be fair topics that sometimes fall under the umbrella of uh language policing oversensitivity i think that's a valid point sometimes this stuff does get absurd other times people use absurdity as a shield for bigotry you know it's like oh i'm not i'm, I'm just being absurd i'm not a bigot or they're just being super insensitive and uh, mean-spirited and dickish and trying to you know mask that or uh deflect any kind of pushback you know on that sort of stuff by saying oh you know i'm just doing me i don't know you know it's very tricky to me and i think maybe my conversation and the and the way that i talked about it with lean lux reflects that it's i it's hard for me to to parse it i think it's because i have like two competing impulses on the one hand i want to be polite respectful i want to make friends in the world i don't want to poke people in the eye unnecessarily i don't want to be uh, provocative in that way just for the just for the sake of it you know what i'm saying i don't mind being provocative but i don't want to just like you know uh, use words that offend just to get a rise out of people at the same time it's easier than ever before maybe to offend people or it can sometimes feel like that and i i can understand that sentiment as well especially within the context of social media. You speak out of turn, you say something in an imperfect way, and suddenly you know people can turn on you, and you can become a persona non grata over something that's fairly minor. And it can turn into a witch hunt, it can turn into uh, you know, a total uh, destruction of one's uh, you know, identity. That stuff can happen. And uh, not always with merit. Sometimes with merit. Seems to kind of like run the gamut. And, you know, I can bristle against political correctness. Friends of mine, I'm sure, have heard me talk. It's like, oh, God, you know? But then again, being mindful of what you say and how you say it, being aware of the fact that words can actually cause real harm, that makes sense too so i'm conflicted i kind of see it both ways i gotta i gotta strike some sort of balance but i i tend to agree with luke in in a broad way about uh you know being too wobbly as the host of the show you sort of have to have uh, a stronger stance makes for a better listen anyway i just gotta it's also gotta be true i can't it's gotta be authentic so maybe I'm like strongly waffling. <laughs> anyway, point taken, Luke. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in. Uh, I really appreciate it. One more letter. Uh, this one comes from a listener named Alex who writes, Hey, Brad, I'm one of those writers who has high confidence in his material, but is very lazy about submitting it. What's a good place to start? I want to publish in places that feel right, but I know that I'm probably not going to end up in the upper echelon publications that I read a lot. That stuff takes some serious clout. Any insights? Thanks, Alex. So, Alex, I you know I you can always submit to the slush pile if your stuff if you really feel your stuff is up to snuff. Why not submit to the publications that you read a lot and really admire? But uh, I think you also make a decent point in saying that it takes some time to build up. You need some clips. You need to uh, 
get your writing out there typically, get on the radar of various editors. And I think what you should be spending your time doing in the uh, short term is reading lower echelon publications online, familiarizing yourself with them and finding the ones that you like. There are plenty of good ones out there. Find the ones that you like and then start submitting there. Or just create your own site and put your stuff up there. If you've got a strong enough presence on social or an ability to uh, get the word out, that's not always a bad way. And, uh, you know, if the work is really that good, people will find it. I believe that. At least, you know, to a reasonable degree. If you're a total hermit with no social presence, it might be difficult. But it also depends what you're writing. I mean, if you're writing short stories and self-publishing them on your blog. I don't know. But if you're writing like long-form essays or stuff that might be topical, I've seen it work that way. People sort of build up their own little vertical. So thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, You guys, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest, once again, is Jim Crusoe. Uh, his new novel, The Sleep Garden, is available now from Tin House Books. I'm very pleased to have had the chance to talk with him. Uh, I've known of him for a long time. I can't believe this was the first time we sat down and talked. Uh, it was a great pleasure, and I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from him. So here he is, folks. This is Jim Crusoe. His new novel, One More Time, is called The Sleep Garden. It's a totally made-up name, and it's because uh, the original name was Khrushchevsky, uh, which isn't Hungarian, but my relatives were. I okay. Mean, and uh, what happened was I like to think my uncle had a sign painting business in Cleveland, Ohio. The business still exists, weirdly enough. And uh, he got tired of painting all those letters at the bottom <laughs> of his sign. Well, so I don't know why he just didn't do crew or Cruz or something, but he did Crusoe. I think because of Robinson. Crusoe, I was going to really, say, I was going to say echo. And but like the the original name, however many letters it was, what was mm-hmm. it? Thirteen letter something. Okay, and that was how was that spelled? K R U S O V S K Y. Okay, so he kept the the kept the beginning the beginning of it. Yeah. And uh, are you from Cleveland? I am from Cleveland. Okay. Um, and with uh, emphasis on the word "from." Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm from Indianapolis. <laughs> I hear you, <laughs> and I feel for you. Those too. are some bleak winters. Uh, well, bleak bleak period. I mean, um, I, I was just actually 
talking to someone about the Midwest, and the problem is that it's mostly boring. Um, and when I was in Cleveland, people kept saying, oh, this is the best there is. And I would be, I left when I was 17, and I just kept thinking, this can't be. It can't be. It's, it's got to be, be more. more. got to be more up here. Uh-huh. Yeah. And actually, you know, there is more up here. Uh, dr- I mean, even driving up La Brea, uh, uh, getting here, I was struck in that kind of a memory palace way by the level of visual stimulation mm-hmm. along the streets of this part of town. I live in a part of town where there's less. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, you know, holy smoke. You know, there is so much information being given, um, maybe more information uh, in La Brea than in the whole of Cleveland. It's possible. I mean, it's a, and Los Angeles is so big that I find myself discovering uh, new pockets of it all the time. It's going to be, you never can touch it all. Like, no, you can't. So it's like an ongoing exploration, whereas I feel... I mean, I guess uh, I don't know every nook and cranny of Indianapolis, but when you live in a smaller place, it does feel like you sort of get the lay of the land in a fuller way. Yeah, but it's like finding out the size of your cage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it you didn't love Cleveland. I did not, although I did a, I did a kind of a whole book um, called Erased, a novel, which is like an homage to the anti-Cleveland. I mean, I couldn't – Cleveland, I found – I still find fairly unspeakable, but I, but the great fun of Erased was creating um, a kind of mythical, wonderful, uh, intellectual paradise. Like a, like the yeah, because I feel the like Cleveland. I wanted it to be. And when did that? Uh, you know, was was like the onset of adolescence when that shift happened for you? Because I, I my childhood was bifurcated between cities, and I found I find that like my memories of the early uh, part of my childhood in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Are very like idyllic seeming, but then like junior high and high school were in Indiana, and that's where I wanted to get out of. Like I feel like maybe it has something to do with being an adolescent, where you suddenly start to feel the parameters of your cage. I can't remember never wanting ever. I just I always wanted to get out of Cleveland. You Although always did. It, it was it's there was a, there's a kind of a, a, a ur consciousness though where you grow up in those first years that's kind of amazing. Um, I, I remember. I haven't been back to Cleveland for quite a while, but last time I went back, I went back to the house that I was raised in, and it's it was like the primal house, you know, um, the the idea of home, the idea you of go chi- in? childhood. So kind of, I went to the neighborhood, and the neighborhood, uh, the house was as as everyone says, you know, immensely shrunken. The mm-hmm. entire neighborhood was ravaged. About every other house was boarded up. Um, including my old house. So it was all boarded up, and I actually went there not for the house, but there was a pear tree in back that I remember, uh, Bartlett pears. And to me, and, and the taste of a Bartlett pear is the taste of my childhood. Hmm. And I went to, and the tree had been cut down, the house board was boarded up. And I actually broke into it, uh, which was kind of fun because it's it was in a really tough neighborhood and was it a tough neighborhood when you were growing up it was no it was kind of lower middle class but but this is like beyond tough you know yeah uh a lot of gangs lots of stuff and uh so i I broke into the house to see what it was like inside and and fascinatingly i remembered out of everything because i thought this was like my central image of my childhood i remembered a um a banister, only a banister going upstairs to the second floor and a 
little sink where I used to throw up. And the rest of it, I couldn't have picked out of anything. You throw up a lot as a kid, or is it just like you, the memories were searing? Um, I did throw up a lot. And in those days, at least it seemed like it, uh, in those days, kids got kids a lot Kids puked more back in the day. They did. They got a lot sicker, you hmm. know, and they didn't give you meds in my family. Just rub <laughs> some dirt on it, kid. You're from eat, Cleveland. Eat some dirt. <laughs> get over it. Yeah, get over know? it. But, uh, but yeah. And so it was. It was interesting. And then uh, when I walked out, I there was this guy driving down the street uh, on his bicycle, and it was kind of a great line. And I felt I felt so compelled to tell him that I'd lived there. I stopped him and I said, "You know, I used to live in that house." He said, <laughs> "You could buy it for the price of a VCR." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no, probably not too far from the truth. I mean, in Detroit, yeah, especially post two thousand nine, there's giving away houses. Yeah. That's right. Literally. Yeah. You know, so that part of the country, the Rust Belt, really, I think, maybe took the brunt of, or, or is one of the places that took the brunt of the Great Recession. Oh, indeed. You know, things yeah. have really been knocked back. Hopefully, they're going to come back a little bit. But I've had the same experience uh, going back to my childhood neighborhood in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I think the last time I was there was probably, oh, God, 20 years ago. But I, I had that exact same feeling where everything was so much smaller mm-hmm. because proportionally, you know, when I was experiencing it as a kid, the trees were huge. The houses seemed bigger. That's right. The streets seemed longer. Yeah. That was what I couldn't get over. I was like, oh, this is, this is tiny. It's like a, it's, it was a very kind of disorienting to, to go back as an adult and, you know, after many years had passed and to have that happen. And then I guess a lot of the trees had grown, you mm-hmm. know, that that's one thing that does get bigger is that the trees that were, you know, baby trees when mm-hmm. I was a kid had, had become uh, full sized, but, uh, it's odd. You can't, you can't go home again. Except, I mean, what, the thing that interests me about all that, and it's, it's sort of like an ongoing theme or side theme. And what I th- think about is the clarity of those images in your mind are undiminished and even when they bear no relationship to anything real whatsoever, uh, they live in our minds, uh, and, and it's a world of our own. You know? yeah. and, and that's spooky and interesting to me. Yeah, like the, the way that, like, you know, you can have... I, I, I always say that my first memory was a nightmare. I remember having a nightmare about the Incredible Hulk when I was a kid. Uh, we were living in San Francisco, mm-hmm. or actually conquered outside of San Francisco in the 70s, and... Uh, I remember my mom and I in the kitchen and she was feeding me like a peanut butter sandwich mm-hmm. or something like that. I think that happened. I have those, those images in my head. Mm-hmm. I have the sensation of that dream somehow, mm-hmm. but that could just be bullshit that I've been telling myself. I, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it becomes complicated and confusing. It's hard to know how accurate things are. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, I teach memoir and fiction and I tell everybody they're the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't understand. I mean, memoir, I guess I don't have the recall or, or I guess you're just like, I mean, what's what's your, how do you teach it? You know, if you do conflate the two, what do you tell people? Because you do want to have some fidelity to the truth or I I don't worry about fidelity to the truth. I mean, I, I think that essentially the problem with all of us problem with you know sitting next to some old guy on the bus who's telling you that milk used to be five cents is like who cares i mean we have all these memories that are important to us but teaching it is to tell people that they have to make them interesting to other people right and that's that's 
that's a tough one because it's really hard. If you're writing about your own life, it's really hard to sort out what's important and what's not so important because, you know, uh, it's just tough. And that keeps shifting, too, as a matter of fact. Well, and the things that might be important to the writer might not be interesting on the page. Very often. Yeah. Very often. I mean, you know, it's like... You know, I, I, you know, you, this is, it's one of the interesting questions about f- the memoir versus fiction because there's, you know, like I see, here's another Vietnam memoir. And it's like, okay, but I've read this in one variation or another a million times. And then same thing with people who've had horrible things happen in their lives. I thought, well, okay, uh, you have to make it interesting. And it, it and it's like so horrible in a certain way to say that. But it's you have to true. Enter, entertain me. Entertain me. And and I, I, years ago, every once in a while, um, I would be, this was, um, I believe during the Reagan era, but it, it covers a lot of eras, the Bush era as well. There used to be a piece on NPR where they would have someone tortured who had been tortured and come talk to people about what they did to him. Wow, NP- NPR used to be edgier. It was a lot edgier, yeah. And and it was, you know, it's like so horrible and reprehensible. Uh, I would sit down and write a, a piece essentially saying it's wrong to torture people. But I did not because we don't know that, but because I needed to say that. And then I would look at it and I'd say, oh, um, oh, you know, well, you've got to make it more interesting. And then it turns out then then it felt like really filthy because I would be playing with I hadn't been tortured in that way. Then I'd have to play with other people's pain in a crafty way. So I always wind up throwing them out. Yeah. But, uh, but it's a real interest. It is a question, you know, what, what compels us to read? Do you have to give yourself, I mean, you have to give yourself permission, I guess, if you're writing fiction, but possibly also with memoir, you do have to give yourself permission creatively to play with the lives of others, to write about them, to, uh, make potentially, um, difficult decisions about how to make difficult experiences entertaining for a reader. Yeah. You know, uh, I give you, I always you know, give yourself permission to write about anything and give yourself permission to throw out anything. Yeah. And, and that's, and then you'll figure it out. Maybe and the skill is to know what to throw out and what to keep. <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> so yeah. I want to, I want to know more about Cleveland, uh, you know, growing up there. Like what, what did your folks do? Uh, my dad was a house painter, and my mom uh, was a legal secretary. Okay. And, uh, you know, we were lower middle class or upper lower class. It was, you know, it was always edgy. Uh, it was always interesting because, I mean, this is an obvious thing, but during winters, house painters don't much work. Right. So my dad would be out of work, and, you know, um, and at times he would be gone a lot. It, it was... Uh, Doing what? Like on jobs or just... On jobs. Um, the, his brother, my dad's brother, was a church decorator. He was... And interesting, he represented the artist in the family. And kind of paradoxically, he was a really successful church decorator. So what does a, a church decorator do? They, they paint, decorate they the church. Paint all that gold leaf and stuff. If you're Catholic, it's like they yeah. do a hell of a lot of gold leaf. Yeah. They paint the insides of those churches. And they do murals. He used to be a 
movie house decorator, <laughs> and then he switched over to churches because it was more profitable. Right. Um, Catholic Church, they got some money. They do. Uh, <laughs> and if get, they don't, they know where to get it. Yeah, right. They got to get that ceiling painted. <laughs> exactly. So it, so they would do out-of-town jobs, and my dad would be gone for a couple of weeks gotcha. around, around the state in that in that case. But, uh, but yeah, things were pretty marginal in that way. Um, what about your schooling? You you go to uh, just local public school? Local public school, although um, kind of luckily, and, and it's weird, Cleveland in those days, which was um, just after the Second World War, Cleveland in those days turned out to have the one of the most progressive school systems in the country. They were the first person, first place, excuse me, that um, I think created the gifted program. Huh. And um, and this was boom time in America, post World War II. Exactly, that was the height of empire, right there. Yeah, you know, like we, uh, yeah. we sort of had a run of the place. And they and they and so I was in there. I was in second grade, and I was talking to everybody uh, at all the time and all the time during class and poking people and you know, <laughs> throwing just, up <laughs> and throwing up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and. They had the sense to sort of say, this kid's probably bored instead of this kid's a sociopath or a psychopath. Right. Um, and so they gave me these tests and they said, oh, here's a, we're going to put you in a different class. And suddenly it was a class that um, they were teaching us French. What grade was this? Third. Third grade. It never took, but uh, – and we would go down – Maybe once a month to the art museum, uh, Cleveland Museum of Art's really terrific even now, and the uh, orchestra down to uh, here, Cleveland Orchestra. Yeah, and um, so it was like a f- first class public education in those. days. I had one too. I had yeah. a, I had the same kind of thing, and, and uh, was in it, a, a program like that, and it made all the difference. Yeah, it was pivotal. At sixth grade, that was when I that was when I moved to Indiana, and. Was I was in the classroom next to the gifted classroom, mm-hmm. and actually started listening in, and petitioned my guidance counselor in writing to let me in. Wow, <laughs> I've never done anything that like That's uh, so amazing savvy since. I think that was my peak. <laughs> well, when it worked the opposite for me because I had that the first three or four grades, and then we moved to the supposedly upscale suburbs, uh-huh. and, and the upscale suburbs. What's that? Shaker Heights? What is that? And no, Maple Heights was upscale for us. Okay. I mean, Shaker, but it, we couldn't get into Shaker. Okay, but Shaker is the upscale Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Maple Heights at that time, I wouldn't doubt now, we used to brag that they had the lowest operating cost per pupil in the entire state. And <laughs> they'd say, and look what we're giving you. And I'd say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're efficient. Uh, they were, yeah, it was, it was awful. So, uh if I had ever had doubts about staying in Cleveland, uh, the Maple Heights experience. Uh, it was bad. It was horrible. Yeah. It was a shitty school or just you didn't like the people? or Bad both? school. Um, you know, you always wind up finding friends. But yeah. uh, it, was, it, it was a bad school. So it didn't do well by their students. And you started plotting your escape when? Like in a, in a, in a way that felt like concrete. I didn't know I could, actually. What happened um, was... In, they gave me a test one day, and it turned out it was the college boards, I guess. But I didn't even know what they were because nobody in our school much went to college. Um, and I think I scored well enough that people took some notice. And then so people were saying, hey, do you want to attend here? And um, so I thought, 
how far away from Cleveland can I get? <laughs> <laughs> which which led you where? Los Angeles. That was it. That was it. That's how I came out here. And what did you think when you showed up here? That was wonderful. I mean, I tell you, it was fabulous. Okay? What year was this? 1961. It oh. was fabulous because, um, okay, first thing, I, I took the trailways across country like Greyhound, cause I, and it took seven days, and it was horrible. Oh, my God. And I got off the bus. and This is a very quintessential L.A. story. It is. And some guy walks up to me. I'm, there I am standing, you know, and... He says, I have a baby's head in this box. Do you want to, <laughs> I'll give it to you for $10. And? And, and I was confused. <laughs> not and in Cleveland was, anymore, Jim. Not in Cleveland. And the problem, the thing was, I was, there's two issues here, you know, like probably it's not a real baby's head. I figured, you know, <laughs> but then I thought, well, is $10 too much? <laughs> you know? I didn't have it. If I'm going to buy a baby's head. I want a deal. So exactly. So I respectfully declined. But it was like it was fabulous because clearly I was not in Cleveland, and it was as if the walls you know, of the prison all had just flattened themselves and went down. And then um, that's a great time in life to go travel. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. a great time in. It's like the, you got to do it almost because you uh, it really opens the world up. Sense of possibility. You have all that energy. You're resilient enough physically to take a seven-day Greyhound bus trip across the country without, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think I could do that today. I didn't know any better. Yeah, right. You know, and you yeah. can do that stuff and sleep on couches and floors and, you know, all that kind of, yeah. uh, th those are kind of good memories. And then when I got here, I mean, I was I was a geek before they were geeks. You know what I mean? I mean, they didn't have... Prototype. Even a, they didn't even have a name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the beta geek. <laughs> <laughs> but I had like a flat top and glasses, you know, and, yeah. and uh, stupid short sport shirts and clothing and all that. And I got here and I um, looked around at, the, and what I saw were surfers. Uh -huh. And there and surfers are. I still have this great, really, really, really soft spot in my heart for surfers. Me cause, too. Because they had the extra long uh, J.C. Penny T-shirts. They wore khakis. They were the low cut Converse, and they were all. Didn't sweat anything, whereas yeah. I sweated everything every yeah. second. I, like in, in, a, in a future life, I want to come back as like a world-class surfer. You know it. And yeah. I, you know what's interesting, though, is that when I find uh, myself watching like interviews or I hear people speak who surf or who ski or who do these sports that, it has like, that have like a very strong and powerful nature component, I'm always struck. And I guess maybe this applies to all athletes, but there's a... There's very few of them who have like really strong powers of articulation. They're mellow. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean, not to use like a, a hackneyed word for surfers, but they are. You know, you have these people who spend so much time being physical and being in beautiful places, and they're really good at it. It's fun. They seem to have a certain tranquility or something about their uh, and confidence and confidence, a physical confidence mm -hmm. especially. But if you start to ask them about it. You very, I very rarely have heard somebody talk about the physical thing that they do in a way that is as gripping as, say, somebody who is not a surfer but is a writer can write about it. Does mm -hmm. that make sense to you? you yeah, sure. Because yeah. writers stand outside themselves all the time. Yeah. and But to surf, you can't. You almost have to be within yourself or something. You I know? think so. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's really lovely. I mean, uh, I was never much of an athlete, but once there were one, two, one or two moments I remember where I was 
totally in, in my whole life where I totally inhabited my body. When? Um, once I was just running around the track, and I was absolutely uh, in college. Uh, I was just absolutely aware of being an animal. My mm. animal self was totally there, and I was totally happy. It was the most amazing thing. And you were running fast. Uh, not so fast, but strong. Yeah, you didn't feel tired. <laughs> I didn't feel. I, did, I felt like I could go forever. Yeah, yeah. I have. It's funny that you say that. I'm thinking back to a basketball game I played in like seventh grade. It's maybe the best game I ever played. Yeah, and I have no idea why. Yeah, I was a beast. I was not that great of an athlete, but I had a great game that you day. You were in the groove. Yeah, and these people do it regularly. <laughs> it must be amazing. Did you ever get out on the water and surf? Like when you got here, did you give oh, it a shot? Yeah, I did. I did. I was a big body surfer for a while, but uh, I'm, because I'm nearly blind, nearsighted, it was really hard to do anything, and I have a poor sense of balance. <laughs> <laughs> a, I wouldn't see the waves coming, and B, I couldn't stay on the board. But the body, the body surf thing, I could more or less handle. Yeah, so, I like the I body surf too. I love that. I don't like a crowded break. It's hard to because I came out late, so to learn on a break out here where you have sixty people in the lineup many of whom are like, you know, high level surfers, you're just in the way. Yeah. And then your board is flying around and hitting people and you, and like you're getting tossed around and then you, you surface and someone's in your face yelling at you. It's yeah. like, you know, I'll just body surf over here. It's perfectly fine for someone like me. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's fun. And, well, it's, yeah, in a, in a way it's more elemental, if you can say it, than having that little board, you know. I don't need a board. Yeah. That's all I need is the, all I need is the ocean, Jim. We are the board. <laughs> Um, so you showed up here. Were you living coastal? Were you west side? Is that where you went? You just got you, you left Cleveland. I, it, it seems logical that you come to Los Angeles. You're just going to go to the Pacific. Is that what you did? Or well, I, I was before I went to college. Actually, I mean, I mean I, like the week before I I came out. Um, and I, I, the first time I saw the Pacific, I do remember. Um, I think my I had an uncle out here. He took me to the Pacific, and. Um, it was a wonderful experience. I didn't know what to do, so I just stood in the waves and like a fool and let myself <laughs> be battered. Yeah. And it was like, yes, that's what... And in a way, it's like uh, the metaphor, isn't it? Like the waves are hitting you and I'm getting back up. Yep. And little did I know <laughs> that would never end, huh? I, you know, you talk about body surfing. You talk about these uh, sports like surfing where you're kind of out in the elements in a powerful way. Uh, I find that every time I do it, I feel really good. Mm -hmm. It's energy giving in some strange way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I wish I did it more. It's amazing. I need to get out there. Yeah. Uh, do you still swim? I no, I don't. I do don't much. Um, yeah. But uh, we did just recently move to the beach, and I tell you that uh, from um, South Pasadena, the east side, and I tell you that it's just really made a huge change in my mental picture. Really. Yep. What beach? Um, San Pedro. Okay. Point, yeah. Point Furman. It's the southernmost tip of Los Angeles County. And That's where uh, Bukowski uh, yes. lived yeah, in last, his later days. Yeah, last 11 years of his life, yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, there's something about being able to, st I mean, I was talking about La Brea, but the opposite is being uh, able to stand out and see nothing and see no one. Well, mm. see Catalina. But, yeah. you, but you look and you don't see people. It's just, like, amazing. I know. Especially when you're, like, I'm living in the thick of the city. Yeah. Anytime I get out into nature and it's just, it's even like a little bit quiet, I appreciate it. Yeah. And I guess like maybe the converse is if you lived out in the boonies and you come to the city, you're finally like getting that stimulation. But 
I spend 95% of my time in the, in a really hyper stimulated environment. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder sometimes like if that's good for me, I guess it's, well, I guess it is and isn't. You know, it's tricky. I mean, when I go back to New York, a reason I like New York is because you, you're you know, it's like being on caffeine the entire oh, it's, time. It's you're amazing. Really awake. Yeah. But then after a while, I think there's a numbness that must come with that. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you well. live there, I've never lived there, but I, you know, every time I visit, I'm like, this is so great. And then when I'm coming home, I'm always exhausted mm -hmm. because I find that I, I'm staying up later. I'm always out late, you know, New York just does something to my clock that's different and it's always like a four or five day experience. So I'm packing a lot in mm -hmm. and then on the flight home, I'm, I'm crushed and I'm like, how do people do this? You know, every day. Yeah. And I guess event, you know, at some point you settle into a groove and it's real life and you just have to, you know, I guess you adapt to the rhythms of wherever you live, but it can't, you can't be running at that speed all the time. No, but you, they do produce. I mean, they do produce, and you know, that's. I don't think it's you know coincidence that there's such a writing scene there. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And like, I think too, like a uh, a similar but not totally similar experience happens to me whenever I'm in Las Vegas, which I don't love. I liked it better as a younger uh, as a younger person, but mm -hmm. Vegas when I go there, talk about overwhelming. I, I I have like a 24 hour rule, and then all the sounds of the uh, slot machines start to bug me out. I will. It's a depressing city. <laughs> I find it horrible. I mean, I, I find it because it seems to me it's it's like in a little bit like America these days, but it's it's uh, premised entirely on greed. Yeah, uh, just get more, get it's more, whatever it is. And um, I find it, it scares me, and I hate it. You know. Yeah, I think uh, like I, when I was going in college, well, I wasn't giving it any thought. It was just hedonism, no. and it was of like, course great. There's no rules, you know, yeah. and then. I don't know. A little bit of time goes by. <laughs> you start to see the forest for the trees, and it's like not, not not nearly as charming. Yeah, the last time I was there must have been 30 years ago, and it was kind of wonderful. The one wonderful thing was that I was there for some function or another. It wasn't on my own, but we were staying across the street from the Las, uh, Las Vegas Museum of Natural History. And it was perfect <laughs> because what they did was they had things like they would have um, dinosaurs and raccoons right next to each other. So say, the very lightly trafficked Los Angeles or Las Vegas Museum of Natural History. There can't be many people going through that. I don't think there are too many, but it was it was great. And and, and they had a lot of the things were animatronic. Nice. Uh, so like was, Chuck E. Cheese, like that kind of thing. Well, yeah, kind of, you yeah. know. But they were like mammoths you know, making noises. I think we need to bring animatronics back. I always liked that when I was a kid. Has it left? I don't. I feel like maybe uh, they're phasing out. I haven't seen a lot of it, but you huh. know, maybe I'm not in the market. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay, so let's get back to the 1960s. And you go to college where? Occidental in Los Angeles. Okay, so you go to Occidental, and uh, are you thinking I'm going to be a writer at that point? I was. I started as pre med, but then I hit chemistry. And I thought, you know, forget it, Jim. Um, and I was spending all my time reading anyway. Yeah. So I was thinking I would be a writer or, I have to say, a writer or something. And when you're in your 20s, I don't know if I could have been so articulate as to say a fiction writer or a poet. I, you know what I really thought, and this is kind of shameful, is I just thought I want to be noticed. I want, I want someone to see me. Yeah. Uh, uh, which hasn't happened, so that's okay. <laughs> you know, but, I see you, Jim. but it, but it got you know it got me going in a certain way. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I mean, I think if you're 
interested in the arts, that has to be a component of it. Yeah, and then and then to find out how and why that's going to take place. Yeah, it's like not only the the urge to be noticed, but I think that's coupled with like I have something to say. I thought I did. Of course, I didn't, but I thought I did. Yeah, at that stage. Yeah, but you you thought that maybe you could one day or something. I thought he did right then. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> so all we need to do is go back and like look through those journals from our uh, early twenties, and you know, realize the fallacy. Of- well, what, what, apropos, which sometime I think it was my senior year of college, I decided that I was going to do an experiment uh, that was going to be mind blowing. I was going to lock myself in my apartment in that time and um, for not leave for three days, I believe it was. And I was just going to take notes on everything. (laughs) And I was going to have these at the end of the three days, I would have this amazing, profound notebook, right? Yeah. So I did. And at the end of three days, I had a page and a half of drivel. <laughs> and even I knew it. And I just thought, I said, okay. This is going to be a different beast. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because like that was when you were, what, early 20s? Yeah. Uh, I, I am a bit, sh- a bit ashamed to admit that like, it's probably three or four years ago. And I had been reading and reading and reading. All these young writers uh, were taking lots of Adderall. It became it was a thing on college campuses. Absolutely was. There's kind of be like you know, the new caffeine. It was almost like a performance enhancing drug. Was the way that I was, uh, you know, perceiving it mm-hmm. because you know, God, these people can stay stay up for twenty hours writing. Oh, and it, it, yeah, it seems like uh, Faust. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm past my prime. But as an experiment, mm-hmm. I'm curious. Like, I want to get three of these things. I want to see if I can crank a crank out a piece of writing. Yeah. In three days, it's going to be called Daderall. It's just like, you uh-huh. know, just something silly like that. Like, just middle-aged guy. Yeah. I just wanted to see. I got nothing done. I did it That's for a day. That's so I, interesting because I always wanted to do that. Yeah, and, you know, it was like eh, I was I was in a coffee shop. I didn't need a coffee. <laughs> I was wide awake. I was writing stuff, but it just wasn't worth a shit. I couldn't do it. Wow. I don't know how. I mean, maybe I'm just too old or something, but uh, I, I was curious and... Uh, maybe that was an experiment for a younger age. Well, I don't know. The only thing I can say is that I have some friends who had done the Adderall thing, and, and beware, because there's like major, major damage yeah. that comes from that, which I had never heard about. Well, no, the accumulated—I mean, accumulated damage—if you really use it a lot—is is serious, completely scary. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when did things turn? You know, you're spending your twenties here, the sixties. I'm always imagining the older Los Angeles as a better Los Angeles. Um, it's less traffic, fewer people. I don't know. You know, um, I mean, maybe it's hard for me to separate the actual time from the time in my life because in a way they both hit at the same time. It, that is to say, as I remember the 60s and I look at the kids that I see these days and I think that there's a difference. As I remember the 60s and 70s, there was the sense that anything was possible. Hmm. Um Drugs were possible. Um, um, Pre-AIDS, like sex, you know. Sex was possible, not for me, sadly. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> One can dream. Yeah, but I did. And and um, and I remember, man, I remember um, a meeting in this beautiful, beautiful woman at a party at one point. And she said to me, do you want to come with me to Peru to greet the um, touchdown of the aliens? Yes. Well, I didn't. I said no. Oh. Uh, but 
but but the fact that I gave it a thought, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, but but there, you know, we had they had all those things. They had the organ boxes. They had um, oh, right everything. Rolfing was going. I mean, Rolfing still is going on. But you know, everything was sort of saying, "This is it. Here we are, and we can go in any direction." And 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 so partly it was me being in, at that age, but partly I think it was a world where we were saying. Clearly, the political system wasn't working either. We need something new. We have all these organizations that we can, you can join. Um, and you're and in Los Angeles, which is uh, like a, I would say, I guess, along with San Francisco, like a, a new age capital of America. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I say that in the sense of there are lots of spiritual experiments going on here. You could, like, However esoteric or far flung your ideas may be, there's somebody else here that you can meet up with exactly who's got similar ideas yeah. and uh, it's a very permissive uh, culture in that way you know yeah. it's, a, it's a laboratory well it is a lab and, and I mean a little thing about Los Angeles the thing I love about Los Angeles it is only one of the two mythic c- cities of, lo- of this country the other being New York um, and um, Los Angeles is the image generator and New York's the idea generator and yeah. it's and I think they're both terrifically exciting, um, and and so um, yes, I, I, it was a wonderful time to be here. Um, I yeah, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, you I didn't had, have any Hollywood interests? No, I didn't. I didn't. You know, I I didn't get. I mean, I didn't. I didn't get a good education by which I mean I I wasted my four years I didn't know what the hell I was doing I did the same thing you know the only thing I could say is good is that it kept me out of trouble right and and you you learn something just by being in it I think socially interacting with your peers yeah Um, you do I did glean some education from it it wasn't that I got nothing I just think that hindsight's 2020 and I could have used it so much better (sighs) that time that's right so you sort of ache thinking like, God, if I'd, have, if I'd have taken it really seriously and really used that time to read, I could have gotten an education. I see kids today and I go, how did you get so smart? You know, how did you know so much? Um, you know, I wish I had. Yeah. But uh, but it was a, it was an amazing time because, uh, again, and more than any other city in LA, in the country, uh, Los Angeles is a place without rules. Um, you know, you especially in the 70s, you know, you try it. And you do it, yeah. So and, um, and and like also, like very little judgment. I mean, there is a, a great. There's great stratification of wealth in the city. There's there's class issues for sure, you know. But there is, uh, I find, something very charming about how accepting people are of the weird. Like you can be talking to somebody, and it's like, what do you do? Well, it's like I'm a circus performer. Which circus? <laughs> you know. Yeah. But if you try that in Cleveland, you know, or you say I'm a writer, you, you say something like I'm a writer. It's like, well, what have you done? Or what do you really do? You know, what's yeah. your day job and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I guess I just appreciate the fact that you can be an oddball in Los Angeles and not have to explain yourself. Yeah. The judge, the only judgment is, are you cool or not? Right. But it's not moral or, you know, ethical. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The cool thing, you know. <laughs> But we, we get over that. You know, are you torturing kittens in a, in a cool way or not? <laughs> are you selling babies' heads in boxes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when does when does the first like serious uh, attempt to write a book happen? Well, uh, what happened was that I I wound up um, 
I graduated from college, da, 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 and I wound up um, living in Venice and kind of stumbled into this place called Beyond Baroque. Sure. And um, still there. It is still there. And I'm, and I'm, you know, really proud of having been there. Um, back in those days, as I've said this before, but it's always a story that amuses me. Um, I, I was a kid. I just moved in. I didn't have any idea of anything. I was walking down the street and there's this store on West Washington Boulevard, now Abbott Kinney Boulevard, that um, had black background and gold leaf lettering or gold lettering it said beyond baroque and in the front window were seven dusty vacuum cleaners in various states of disrepair none of them (laughs) clearly was working you know and i just thought what the heck and and the great thing about being in my 20s and being a kid is that i walked in and if i was wonder what this is so i walked in and there's a big room that was black and nothing else it was nothing was in it. It was just a black room, and I thought, "Huh, this is weird." And then, in, from the background, uh, in the, the there's a room behind it. I heard this kind of clattery sound, so I walked in, and there's this guy there, and he's typing on a typewriter that you probably haven't seen. I don't even I certainly don't make them anymore. It's called a Verityper. Okay. And the great thing about the Verityper is it's like a regular typewriter, but with print a single line on a spool of paper so that it would be um, an endless uh, spool of one the, the the paper would actually be about a quarter inch thick and the writing would be on that a quarter inch high what's the purpose of this in those days to make corrections of things you would have to retype it and then glue, glue it down yeah and so he was doing that I didn't know that. And I said, so, hi, what are you doing? And he said, <laughs> like a joke, I'm doing a literary magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and his name is George Drury Smith. And, and I said, oh, can I help? And kind of amazed, I mean, really amazingly, he said, sure. Just like that. Just like that to some stupid kid that walked in off the street. And he said, here's a pile of manuscripts. Why don't you take a look at them? Uh, which is like every you know, kid's dream is to be <laughs> have power. If the door swings open, someone says yes, and seconds later you're reading yeah. submissions. So I was reading submissions, and and uh, you know for various reasons the magazine never ever got off the ground. But what one of the things that was remarkable about George is that a he allowed other people to play with his toys which is really unusual. And then secondly, he was very willing to change direction. He had planned to start an avant-garde literary magazine, and that was it. But then when nobody bought the literary magazine, he had a space, this this black gallery, and he was letting um, a poetry group meet there, and he, he decided he wanted to have a salon in Venice. <laughs> And so we had every alcoholic and drug addict in the entire city would show up once a week (laughs) and do stuff, you know, and hit on each other and get into arguments. And it was great. It was exactly um, the – I mean, most – I mean, in terms of quality, nah. But in terms of atmosphere, it was what was missing from college. It was not genteel. Yeah. And when people didn't like something, they'd say, that's crap. That's how culture gets generated. Apparently. These sorts of, uh, you know, weird combinations of people 
this sort of improvisation. It's just if you build it, they will come. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like it, things never start fully formed. Yeah. You know, but someone's got to start it. It is amazing. And and George did that. And he not only opened the door, but he kept it held open. Right. And and uh, the thing that is astounding to me is it's, it must be 30 years later, um, more than 30 years later, that it's still in, it's an institution. Is in George still with us? Yeah. He's still going. Yeah, he's, he's great. Jesus. You know, um, and it's just remarkable, you know. So that actually... Then I, I mean, I came out of college thinking I was a hot shot poet. I was not clearly. Uh, this, well, but then I got into some real poets, uh, and um, and then I started little by little against my will to learn uh, about what was wrong with me. Isn't it strange how you can have this like inkling that you want to be an artist, you want to be a writer, and yet. The resistance to doing the actual work can be so strong. And I mean, not just writing. I mean, like, writing with, like, all of yourself. Writing with your full mind. Doing your apprenticeship. You know, throwing things away. Writing those shitty words. Yeah. Um, it's, it's strange. It, t- t- it takes... I guess it took me a long time to come around to just how hard the work is. Like, making <sighs> peace with that. Yeah, and, and, the, and the willingness to admit that there's work that it is work and 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 you know i think the key for me was to be listened to by strangers and basically to bore the shit out of strangers and and then take that responsibility uh-huh. that i had done that as opposed to um reading to your friends and and patting yourself you know acrobatically on your own back yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> and letting them like blow sunshine at you like oh it was great you yeah. know and the uh, but when you're in a room full of strangers, and this was happening at Beyond Baroque. It is what happened to Beyond Baroque. Well, you go and you stand up in front of people uh, and you read something that you've written. You, you know whether or not it went over. Oh, you do. And when it doesn't go over, it feels bad. Oh, and, and worse than bad. The, the, so, I was, so, I, so I had worked with George on this magazine for a while, and then I decided that... Um, and, and I had been going to the workshops there and eventually became a leader, quote-unquote, of one of the workshops, the poetry workshop. But then I decided we should have readings in Los Angeles, poetry readings, and because uh, there weren't very many mm-hmm. in those days. There was hardly anyone. And I did it on purely out of self-gratification. I wanted to be able to stand up and read my poetry in front of people. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? I know I'll set up a reading series. And maybe, you know, like the third or fourth or fifth or sixth one in, I'll sneak myself in. So I set up a reading series at Beyond Baroque, which still is going amazingly. And um, and then I waited um, a decent amount of time, and I set up um, a reading with, my, with me and a woman that I really liked. Her name was Eleanor Zimmerman, and she was a really good writer. And I thought, that's good, you know, I'll... Bring, I'll have one good writer, and people will see how good I am. And it was, and it was an interesting experience because, um, in those days, the way we did the readings was we would each read for fifteen minutes, take a break, then come back on. So it was like two sets, like a jazz thing. So there's the room full of people. Eleanor says, "Do you want to go first or second? And I said, "Oh, you go first. It's okay." So, um, no, excuse me. It's, uh, I went. She said, "You go first. So I went first. So I went first, and um, I thought I did pretty well. 
And I sat back down. And then she started reading. And I was completely mortified because I understood exactly how bad every damn thing I had read was. And I'm sitting in the dark of this tiny audience. And Eleanor's reading beautifully. And I and this has happened more than once. It's true, but it's the first time I said, and I'm not kidding. Oh, Earth, swallow me! Yeah. I just wanted to die. I want. I wanted everything. To, I just wanted to disappear. I was so embarrassed. But that's an instructive experience. Well, and then I had to go back up for the second half. <laughs> <laughs> that's not instructive. Knowing what I knew. <laughs> that's, just, that's just punishment. The first one instructive. The second one torture. It is, but you, but you know the funny part. I mean, I've learned this the hard way over the years. Is that I have this tendency to almost need to mess up in public the first time I try something. I'm kind of the same way. I learn by my mistakes. Yeah, and that pain. It really exactly. It's a, it's a motivator. Uh, you know, on the you know first workshop I did in graduate school, I had written this piece that was very rambly. You know, like like just sentences that went on forever, mm-hmm. and this like really caffeine what I thought was like a really caffeinated voice that was going to just like you know wow everybody. Yeah, and I read it and I finished it, and I everyone was like, "What the fuck was that?" Wow. You know, it just like you just knew like it, yeah. it didn't resonate. It was too much, and I never made that mistake again. Wow. But I hated that. I hated that feeling. That's enough to that's enough to keep you from repeating it. Oh, it's awful. I mean, I've given readings. I gave a reading a while ago at a museum, and it was a short story. And, and about a quarter into the story, I understood that it was not working at all. And I, so I was finishing this reading, I, trying to figure out ways to make it shorter yes. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> trying to skip, read. Will they notice if I just skip a few pages? Oh, it was horrible. Where did you go to graduate school? USC. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So came out here. That's how I wound up here. Um, went there and, and got my degree and it was time, you know, I had time to write. That's mm-hmm. what graduate school was for me. And it was also a community of writers. I still have a lot of those friends today. Who did you work with? Uh, I was there with Covey Selby. Yeah. Um, back, it was just right before he passed away. Right. Um, and then Sue Campo, uh, you know, was, uh, my thesis advisor and a friend to me and, um, I took a, com- a comedy writing class from Shelley Berman, which was a riot. Oh my goodness! <laughs> a, yeah, he's a piece of work. Uh, funny, th- funny thing about him. Do you know anything about him? A little bit. I mean, he's like you know, he's he's got his uh, person. He's a big personality. Yeah. But he every semester has students come to his house, and he, he basically has like a, a party. He mm-hmm. has some food, drinks, and everyone sort of hangs out. Beautiful house out in the valley. Mm-hmm. Wife, his wife is dear. She mm-hmm. was so sweet. Welcoming everybody in. She had sandwiches, you know, the whole thing. Shelley Berman has a collection. And for people listening, Shelley Berman is a famous comic. You know, in his time, mm-hmm. it was like Mort Saul. Yeah, Mort yeah, Saul, Shelley Berman, groundbreaking comic. Mm-hmm. He's on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, plays Larry David's dad. Uh, he's a has a knife fetish. Oh. His entire house, knives in cases everywhere. On the walls, glass cases. Wow. He loves knives. Strangest thing. <laughs> takes you around his house and just shows you his knives. Uh, it was, it was, I found it really wow. fascinating, funny. It's, wow. Maybe that's where OJ's wound up. <laughs> <laughs> they just found it. Today is the day they found Did you hear this? No. It's so strange that you said this. I had no idea. On the news, uh, on my Twitter feed this morning, a construction worker was working at OJ's old house in Brentwood and they were digging and they found a knife buried. The Los Angeles Police Department is now in possession of it and is wow. running tests on it. 
Oh, my gracious. That's the story that just keeps on giving, isn't it? That's a little bit weird that you just uh, said that. It's really weird. Yeah. Some, some, you're tuned into the OJ case in a deep way. <laughs> well, I am. I, I actually love that case. Um, I love it because I, I always use the OJ case to explain Greek tragedy in the sense that it's not the entire case, but it's the, the Bronco thing where, where you know, the at the beginning of a Greek tragedy it appears that the bronco can go anywhere <laughs> <laughs> but it's really but, it's but as, it, as it goes on yeah. you know the the uh the walls narrow and um and and i think it's kind of exquisite yeah and, and i love i mean i love that whole thing that's why i like car chases too i mean i'm really into watching them well los angeles is the place i know it you know the five o'clock news there's like one every night i know i tell students if you know if they could like if they get into a car they'd start one and they like have a sign that says hello jim and hold it up when they're apprehended i'll give them extra credit <laughs> <laughs> nobody's ever done it uh so uh, over the years has writing gotten easier for you no it's really hard um it's imp the only thing that's gotten easier is you under I understand my habits and I understand my rhythms so that uh, when I'm unable to write, I don't feel as worthless as I used to feel. I mean, I feel a little worthless, but I feel, don't feel as um, as worthless because I'm pretty sure I've had an experience of having gone through that and having it come around again. Yeah. Um, it's... I mean, I just threw out a novel, actually, and um, so I'm starting over, and it's an interesting... How much did you throw out? First draft. So this is the book that you're writing after The Sleep Garden? Yeah. And you just, first draft, you finished it, and you were just like, nah. Yeah, it was a great idea for a novel. It was great. I may get back to it, but I don't see how. So I just threw it out. I mean, it's, it couldn't work. It was wonderful, uh -huh. the idea, but it, it, for various reasons, it couldn't work. How painful was it to throw it out? A huge relief. I mean, I, all I want to know is an answer. I don't care if it's like a thumbs up or thumbs down, but it's like when it's indeterminate, yeah. then it just drives me crazy. Is this going to work? Can it work? Did it work? Yeah. But um, but the thing that's funny about this state, uh, so I'm at this, like, I'm looking around, and it, it's, it's this, you probably have experienced, probably many people have. When you're like preparing to work again, it's almost like being um, a paranoid psychotic in the sense that you're looking for signs. And in that way, it's kind of wonderful because the entire world becomes illuminated. Um, that, that things that wouldn't be important, something somebody says, you're listening hard for, for answers. And so in that sense, it's, it's both like being a paranoid um, which was my what the novel I threw out was about, uh, but also being spiritually connected because the whole world is important, um, yeah. you know, and 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 at the same time it's immensely frustrating because you're not getting the answers you want. So that's the state I'm in right now. That's the kind of the pre-writing state in a certain way. I mean, I've got about thirty pages, but it, I, I don't know what I'm doing yet. It's preamble. It's preamble to something. You've you got to be patient. You do. Um, the patience is the word. Um, patient and then not patient. Because if you're too patient, you'll just... Right. <laughs> you'll be really, really patient for yeah. a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so spiritually, like you talk about the process and of uh, kind of having your antenna up mm -hmm. for story or for inspiration yeah, or, or whatever. Yeah. Image is what I like. Image is what gets me going. 
images. So you'll have a something that will flower in your mind, or you'll see something out on the streets. And anything. Usually, it's from my, from my mind, but I'll, I'll I'll see something that I can't put away. Yeah. And then I'm then so I'm assuming it has some kind of importance to me, although I don't always know what it is. What about this OJ thing? Maybe you got a book about OJ in you. Holy smoke! I never thought of that. And the knife, huh? Yeah, <laughs> that knife. <laughs> well, you just added to my possibilities for this new book. It's, there you go. I, I, listen, I'm gonna, if, if it actually happens, I'm going to give you credit. There you, I want an acknowledgement. You, shall, you shall get it. <laughs> it would be cool. Um, but, you know, you, you, I think you mentioned earlier you were raised Catholic. I was uh, half Catholic and half. Uh, my dad painted the churches. I was, I was raised half Catholic and half Protestant. Okay. Um, Which ha- did you leave both halves in Cleveland, or did you take one half no, with you? Left both halves happily behind. The Protestant was a very strange Protestant. It was first Hungarian Reformed Church. Okay. Which actually, um, I'm told, is an equivalent to the Unitarians here of all people. Well, that's I, I feel like Unitarianism is sort of a saner strain. Yeah, but the, but the Hungarian version of <laughs> is essentially, well, you will die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And we had this, uh, the great, we had a minister, you know, and he had, oh, it was a wonderful, I mean, he had a, a great long black velvet cape that he would, and he would walk up to this very, very, very high um, podium or lectern, like maybe 10 feet above it, like he it was Dracula on the castle, and he'd say, you know, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's different than the church I went to as a kid. Oh, no, it was great. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when they did communion, they would just have one big glass of wine and just pass it down the row. <laughs> That's, that That's like, why everybody was sick in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> right, everyone's, everyone's barfing because they It kept something at communion, yeah. Um, but you've written books. Uh, you wrote a trilogy kind of uh, you call it the resurrection trilogy yeah so resurrection as a theme is a it's a preoccupation the, the, the theme is is and, and even in the sleep garden it's the theme too is this asking this funny question um what's the difference between being alive and being dead what's the difference between uh, and this goes back to our earlier mention about the first house i lived in yeah. what's the main difference between that image of your first house in your head and as it exists um i mean has it been lost and so i have friends that have died and yet they are as alive as ever in my head yeah. Right? I mean, I mean, I mean. So, so is it like just a technicality? And then, you know, uh, I'm I'm actually still kind of confused over this. I mean, it sounds it's funny. A, no, I'm I'm the same. It's a life project. I don't know if you're ever going to get to like the punctuation mark at the end of that one, but it is. I hope not. No, and it's like, like I'm I'm of the like, currently where I'm at with it is that uh, I think death is an illusion. I don't think it means annihilation. Um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying that people don't pass away and their hearts don't stop beating. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying that like, if we are equating death with annihilation, meaning you go from something to being absolutely nothing, I don't think that's the case. You lose a friend and maybe that friend is no longer here in body, but there are all sorts of different ways in which that friend's life and life energy exist in you and around you. Like kind of infinite ways we all sort of, uh, expand outward yeah i think i mean is that or is that just too rosy of a picture <laughs> I, I, I don't know i mean I, on a personal level death is sort of a failure to keep revising <laughs> you know <Done. laughs> 
so that I, I can't be I can't fix it. You know, it's like being published. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay. Um, final draft. You, the final draft, man. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> That's a nice way to finally step away from the canvas, you know, yeah, essentially. In a way. Um and but but also, it reminds me that so much of life is an illusion. I mean, you know, the life I've led, I think I've led, I know is different than the life I've led. Yeah. I, I, but I, how they're different, I can't always say. Yeah. And it's kind of wonderful. Um, how, little, how little we know. How little we do. And how little we retain and all that sort of thing. And, and of course, people act all the time as if they know everything because we have to act that way. Yeah. And then every once in a while, you sort of step back. I mean, maybe that's what writing is for you. Is it like if that's the space where you get to step back and explore how, I mean, explore how little we know, reexamine, defamiliarize? I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, it's like, hey, what just happened? Right. Um, somebody, um, I was just talking to someone the other day, and they were, uh, they were someone at one point was complaining about this book, but you could complain about any of my books that way. But there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't, there wasn't always closure. And I thought, you know, personally, what a stupid thing to have closure. I mean, I can't. There's nothing in my life that I want closure from, even the painful stuff, because that means what? It, it, to have closure is to stop thinking, is to stop living, and to be able to kind of like poke that wound or poke that joy every once in a while uh, is what I care about. Well, yeah, and to not have closure doesn't mean that you're constantly obsessing about some joy or pain. Right. But it means you can come back to it. Right. And then think about it, and it's still fresh in a certain way. Are there, like, I feel like in a, in a person's life there are often, like, key moments of joy, key moments of pain, episodes from one's past that, you know one returns to or that fuel you somehow artistically like are, mm -hmm. are there those for you sure and what i tell people as well is that there are good places to start writing there um in the sense that you can have take one of those moments but have someone else experience it make give it a have a character do it and see how it turned out for them yeah and it, it's going to be different than it turned out for you give but, it a little bit of creative distance yeah, and and you know you can do it over and over and over again. I mean, one uh, one of the things that I think about are is that I tell people, I tell myself that there's only maybe three or four questions that each of us keep asking over and over again. So one of the things that's important for a writer to find out is what her question is. What's your question? The de life and death, the limits. That's one of them. Uh, the other is um, it started out very early. One of is. Can you ever make up for having done bad? Can is there such a thing as um, being able to undo something you've done in the past? And and I the very f one of the very first stories I ever wrote way back when was a story called Remorse that I liked because I was listening. This is back listening to NPR again. Um, there was this guy in Utah who uh, was being interviewed. Um, he was, I think, going to be um, shot because in Utah they had the firing squad. They still do, right? Yeah, I think. Um, charming. Yeah, well, it's all charming. But um, he had done something like he had forced five people to drink lye, and they died. Jesus. Yeah. 
And and when they were interviewing him, he said, well, I've, I just feel a lot of remorse. And, and I, I laughed at the first. And But then I thought, well, I mean, A, what does that mean? And B, what does it mean that I could feel remorse? You know, if I mean, what does it mean? And so that question... Uh, has propelled a lot of things. One of the things that I like are characters that in many ways are well-intentioned and lethal. You know, I like characters that do horrible things meaning to help people out, yeah. you know? Which happens in life. Oh, you I know? All the time. Yeah, best uh, of intentions. That's me. Horribly wrong. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> but, but yeah, so they do, you know, so... What does that mean? That's a great question. Have you me. gotten any answers over the years? No, not a one. I hope not. Yeah. Um, but I haven't fed people lie either, on the other hand. <laughs> so you got that going for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then, you know, it's, it's still early. That's nah, <laughs> true. <laughs> well, listen, uh, such a pleasure to meet you and get a chance to talk with you. I appreciate you coming over here. I congratulate you on the new book. And I wish you well on what on the big OJ book that's coming next. Oh man, blockbuster! Brad, Brad I, this is the hour went by so quickly. Thank you so much. It's been a complete joy. Thank you. All right, guys. Jim Crusoe wasn't he great? Uh, his novel is called The Sleep Garden. It's available now from Tin House Books. You can find Jim online on Facebook, I believe, and uh, be sure to check out tinhouse.com while you're at it as you uh, peruse the internet in search of Jim Crusoe and his uh, new novel. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music as usual. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad List, the app. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. It's the best way to listen to this show. Get the app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will then be waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50, always free. Uh, and then if you want to uh, access everything, get at the full archive, sign up for a premium subscription. It costs uh, 75 cents a month, 75 cents, 75 pennies a month, access to everything more than 400 episodes and counting available anywhere you go at your fingertips great way to support the show please do that if you want to email me the address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com let me know what you think tell me a story file a complaint offer a withering critique lavish me with praise Anybody out there uh, on spring break right now? Any spring breakers listening to me? Shout out to my uh, my fans. South Padre Island. <laughs> Everybody in Daytona listening to my literary podcast. What is up? My daughter was on spring break. It's just like as a parent... Your kids are on spring break. It's just like, oh, God, what do we do? They're not in school. Spring break used to be so fun. Now it's just like a logistical nightmare. That's what happens in life. I guess I could have gone somewhere. <laughs> that would have been great. We do have friends who like went to Maui. I guess that's what you're supposed to do. Couldn't pull that off this year. Please remember that Longfellow died of peritonitis and that Kant was never once in his entire life in the vicinity of a mountain. That's it for now. Uh, thanks once again to Jim Crusoe. Go get the sleep garden. Thanks to Tin House Books. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening.
and especially to you individually. You're my favorite listener. I appreciate you. I don't know what I would do without you. Thank you for uh, signing up for premium. Thank you for tweeting about the show. Ebulliently. You're my most ebullient listener. Did you know that?